0: 2023 in the Gregorian calendar, in the 26th of Kislev, 5784 in the Hebrew calendar. Today I broadcast to you from New York City. I just landed from Boston as I was giving a talk at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Business School about international relations and business. Of course, I gave a debrief on war in the Middle East. I even pulled up a map to show people where the affected areas are located, since I assume that people actually don't know or wouldn't be able to point it out on a map, so I thought I'd help them out. I'll share a little bit more about my deep, meaningful experience speaking to students a little later in the show. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. I hope that you're all enjoying the Festival of Lights. Now, let's get to the news. Videos and photos are going viral on social media right now, showing the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, capturing dozens of Palestinians suspected of having ties to terror groups in Gaza. The individuals were seen blindfolded and subdued, surrendering to IDF troops in the Jabalia area of northern Gaza where they were subsequently detained with their hands tied. The IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari confirmed the surrender in a way during a briefing stating that the military is focused on areas considered centers of gravity for terrorists. The campaign involves investigating and arresting individuals linked to Hamas and other terror groups in the area. The majority of the civilian population had evacuated the north of the Strip in anticipation of an Israeli ground offensive. This took a couple weeks for the Israeli Defense Force to carry out in terms of just getting the word over to residents that they needed to get out of the way. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari said, quote, Whoever is left in those areas, they come out from tunnel shafts and some from buildings, and we investigate who is linked to Hamas and who isn't. We arrest them all and interrogate them. End quote. 92 Israeli soldiers have been killed in battle during the recent ground invasion into Gaza. Two reserve officers, including 28 year old Master Sergeant Ayal Mayer Berkowitz and Sergeant Major Kobe Dvash, were killed. During fighting in the northern Gaza Strip. People don't realize this, but reserve officers are more or less volunteers who come back years after their required military service for the country. And after that's completed, they usually go on to do some yearly trainings or monthly trainings, however much or however little they they can give in order to keep themselves in good shape and to keep themselves studied on on the art of the military. So these people valiantly come back to the force for their country, even though they are finished with their mandatory service. Today, Friday, the IDF announced the death of two soldiers and then had to update the count of dead IDF soldiers from the ground invasion up to 92 after two soldiers were confirmed dead earlier in the day. So that's four people that were released their identities on Friday. Reservist Sergeant Major Kobe Dvash comes from Tiberias in the north of Israel, and he was a fighter in the 271st Engineering Battalion, the Strike Brigade number no. 14. He was killed in battle in the southern Gaza Strip. He was 41 years old. The second set of names that came out of this afternoon include Reserve Officer Master Sergeant Naftali Yona Gordon, 32 years old, from Jerusalem, and 25-year-old Reserve Officer Sergeant First Class Omri Rot from the beautiful northern city of Katsrin. An officer from the Oketz unit was seriously hurt as well in the northern Gaza Strip and is currently being treated in the hospital. On Thursday, six Israeli officers in Gaza were killed in fighting, including Sergeant Amit Bonzel from Shoham, Staff Sergeant Alemnu Emmanuel Feleke from Kiryat Gat, Reserve Officer Sergeant First Class Maor Gershoni from Yukneam Elite, and Reserve Officer Sergeant Major Jonathan David Daish from Harish. The son of a current War Cabinet Minister for Israel was also killed on Thursday while fighting in Gaza. The man's name was Gal Eisenkot, and he was a reserve officer with the rank of master sergeant. Prime Minister Netanyahu attended his funeral. An Israeli civilian in the north of the country was killed after Hezbollah terrorists fired an anti-tank missile at the man's vehicle near the Lebanese border on Thursday. He was 60 years old and has been identified as Eyal Uzan. He was hit while in an agricultural field near Moshav Matat and was taken by military to a junction where they waited for emergency services to come. Unfortunately, Uzan did not make it and paramedics declared him dead when they arrived. Israel struck the terror group Hezbollah back exactly at the location of their fire. We here at the Israel Daily News Podcast are sending our heartfelt condolences to the families and friends and co-workers of these men who died fighting for the safety of their country's future generations. The elite IDF 98th Brigade has encountered intense battles in Khan Yunis, the second largest city in the Gaza Strip, where top Hamas leaders are believed to be hiding. The brigade has faced multiple terrorists, including the first instance of female terrorists participating in battle. Despite eliminating some commanders, the operation is expected to continue due to the city's size and extensive underground network. So this is going to be widespread and difficult The strategic importance of kanyunis in the region is emphasized by the IDF's objective to disrupt Hamas's military infrastructure through a combination of maneuvers, aerial firepower, and ground incursions. Reuters is breaking down the numbers of Palestinian deaths in Gaza. The latest Hamas-run health ministry report from Gaza claims the death toll in the territory has surpassed 17,400 people with more than 46,000 wounded. The ministry does not differentiate between civilian and combatant deaths, but claims that 70% of the dead are women and children. The IDF says this number is implausible, since most most of the Gazan population are young adult men, and their fighters are young adult men as well. These are the numbers as of October 7th when Hamas overran the Israeli border and massacred 1,200 people with brutal, violent force. I'll share some of what terrorists did to women they came in contact with, specifically a little bit later in the show. The United Nations estimates that 1.9 million people have been displaced and new military evacuation orders are squeezing people into ever smaller areas. There are about 275,000 displaced Israelis who were moved from the northern and southern borders of the country and are living in hotels or with family and friends throughout the country. Gaza has about 2.3 million people, and like I said, 1.9 million have been displaced. Civilians say they have nowhere to go, no clean water to drink, medical care, or a secure shelter. I've personally seen videos of people suffering in tents, While rain was pouring down on them, there was some rain this week. Reuters reports that due to a lack of phone and internet service and health professionals having been killed or gone missing, it'll be difficult to keep track of the casualty toll. At first, according to Reuters, the hospital morgues throughout Gaza sent out the figures to the health ministry's main collection site at the Al-Shifra Hospital, Officials are using an Excel sheet to keep track of names, ages, and ID card numbers of those dead. The last update from Gaza's health ministry came on Thursday from its spokesperson, Ashraf Al-Kidra. He said that 350 had been killed in the previous 24 hours. Apparently, the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah in the West Bank, which is not connected to the Gaza Strip, it's on the other side of, of Israel, are trying to help in record-keeping, the Palestinian health minister, Mai Al-Kaila, on Tuesday said 250 of his staff members were killed and 30 arrested by Israeli forces. A UN human rights official said the numbers don't account for those who never made it to the hospital and might be trapped under the rubble or dead under the rubble. While the United Nations says that Gaza's health information systems are actually better than most in the U- in the Middle East... IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conricus told me during an interview that these numbers can't possibly be accurate because they're coming from facilities run by Hamas, which is a terror entity with an agenda. And this note is coming from me as Shanna as as a journalist who's been reporting on this. I'm confused to begin with at how there's a count or a document that could possibly identify all of these people because it took six weeks for Israeli health officials who were working under much better general conditions to identify 1,200 bodies recovered from the October 7th massacre. Many of these people were unidentifiable because they were so charred, so torched, contorted. Many of them couldn't be identified because they were minors. So it is genuinely confusing to me how... So many people could have been identified. Some 17,000 plus people could have been identified when it took, I would say, about seven weeks to have upwards of 850 people identified in Israel. Israeli senior officials are telling journalists that about a third of those killed in Gaza so far were enemy combatants, estimating that the number is between five and 10,000 enemy combatants killed. The World Health Organization is worried that we are reaching a point in war at which there will no longer be a death count at all due to the situation spiraling out of control and not having the staff to keep up the manpower. The IDF's 98th Brigade is noting a new trend in this war, which includes the deployment of female terrorists serving as observers and carriers of explosive devices. The U.N. Security Council considered a ceasefire resolution, but the United States did not express support for this and favors instead pauses in fighting to protect civilians and release hostages. The U.S. has not given a specific deadline that they wish to see this fighting stop, but they are urging Israel to quicken its execution as fast as possible in an effort to reduce civilian casualties. The United National Security Council voted on this demand for an immediate ceasefire, but the United States, which is a veto-wielding power on this council, said it does not support a ceasefire, and then when the vote came late in the afternoon on Friday... They officially vetoed it. There are 15 members of this body. Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Robert Wood told the council, quote, While the United States strongly supports a durable peace in which both Israelis and Palestinians can live in peace and security, we do not support calls for an immediate ceasefire. This would only plant the seeds for the next war because Hamas has no desire to see a durable peace. Israel's envoy to the United Nations, Ambassador Gilad Erdan, praised American President Joe Biden for, quote, standing steadfastly with Israel. He also said, quote, a little light rejected a lot of darkness. It is shocking that when Hamas is firing rockets at Dan from population centers in southern Gaza, the UN is busy with a disconnected deliberation about a distorted resolution that is directed at the wrong side and does not even condemn Hamas. A ceasefire is possible only with the return of all hostages and destruction of Hamas. In New York, former Israeli General Yair Golan joins some 200 protesters in front of the New York residence of U.N. Secretary General Guterres. They are calling on him to secure the release of hostages in Gaza. There are still 138 hostages in Hamas custody in Gazan tunnels underground right now. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is insisting on an international peace conference to end the conflict with Israel and establish a Palestinian state. He is 88 years old and has been in power for about 19 years. Israel agrees to open the Kerem Shalom border crossing, which is at the Israel-Gaza border. They say it will be open for inspection only. A recent Pew Research study shows that about 41% of adult Americans disapprove of Biden, of the Biden administration's response to the Israel-Hamas war, with roughly a third of adults, or about 35%, approving of the administration's response to the Israel-Hamas war, with the rest saying that they're not sure. Adults under the age of 30 disapprove of Biden's response big time. The survey also found that there is bipartisan concern over violence against Jews in the United States with nearly half of Americans, so about 48 percent, both Republican and Democrat evenly down the line, saying that when thinking about war, they are extremely or very concerned about the possibility of increasing violence against Jewish people in the United States. Rocket sirens have been activated in the center and also north of Israel in cities like Tel Aviv, Rishon, Litzion, Ramat Gan, Givatayim, Petak Tikva, Rehovot, Hulon, and Bat Yam. In Israel's north, rocket sirens have been going off as well throughout communities like Ma'alot Tarshicha, Me'ilya, Abirim, Kfar Vradim, Yanudat, and Goren. Reports continue to come out about sexual violence against Israeli women who have been harmed by Hamas. A sidebar event at the United Nations called Hear Our Voices, sexual and gender-based violence in the October 7th Hamas terror attack was presented and organized by Israel's mission to the UN. Reservist Shari Mendez described the gruesome scenes of female victims' bodies prepared for burial after Hamas's October 7th massacre. The victims showed signs of genital mutilation, with some female soldiers shot in their intimate areas. Mendes highlighted systematic mutilation and recounted and recounted instances of beheading, limb cutting, and burning at high temperatures. The event aimed to shed light on cases of rape and gender-based violence. Prominent figures like Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton stressed the need to condemn rape as a war crime and address weaponized sexual violence globally. Most women's organizations in the United States have not come out about these allegations, have not stood with Israel, even when it was specifically about female rape. And in fact, many organizations said that they couldn't speak because they needed more proof. Well, so much for Believe women. Most organizations have not believed Israeli and Jewish women this time around. The United Nations Women, or UN Women as it's most recognized, took about seven weeks to put out a statement despite loads of evidence and testimonies have been pouring out about heinous, violent rapes of women. I'll read you the statement that they posted on their site about the matter. The headline is UN Women's Statement on the Situation in Israel and Gaza. We deeply regret that military operations have resumed in Gaza, and we reiterate that all women, Israeli women, Palestinian women, as all others, are entitled to a life lived in safety and free from violence. We unequivocally condemn the brutal attacks by Hamas on Israel on October 7th. We are alarmed by the numerous accounts of gender-based atrocities and sexual violence during those attacks. This is why we have called for all accounts of gender-based violence to be duly investigated and prosecuted, with the rights of the victim at the core. In all conflicts, UN women fully support rigorous investigations and commissions of inquiry where they exist. We are actively supporting the UN Commission of Inquiry on the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem and Israel, which began its investigation into sexual violence very shortly after the attacks occurred. We welcome that the commission has opened its call for submissions on gender-based crimes since October 7th. Now, the National Council of Jewish Women responded to this statement with a statement of their own. I will read it to you. National Council of Jewish Women has long admired UN women for their moral voice when women around the world are harmed. Regrettably, this moral voice seems intentionally absent for Israeli women who experience gender-based war crimes, an unconscionable silence that demands immediate rectification on the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. UN women finally issued a belated and tepid response to Hamas's appalling acts in Israel on October 7th, including using rape as a weapon of war. This is unacceptable. Now, that's all I'm going to read you from that statement. The statements and evidence about sexual violence pouring out at that UN event that I just told you about were so vile that I do not want to repeat all of them, and I did share a lot of them just a, a couple paragraphs ago. They are so incredibly detailed and disturbing. Clearly, violence against women, in places and ways that could only hurt women, they are absolutely gender-based and sickening, and I I didn't want to terrorize you on this show by getting into the gruesome details, and I, I released an episode a couple weeks ago with the voices of those forensic scientists that had to work on those women. So I, I know you all heard that. Former Facebook COO Cheryl Sandberg said some compelling things during that event that I would like to share. She said that we can all agree that nothing justifies rape, that rape was recognized as an illegal act of war only 30 years ago, but not enough has been done since. And she said, quote, That is why this moment is so critical. We have come so far in establishing that rape is a crime against humanity, and we have come so far in believing survivors of sexual assault in so many situations. That is why the silence on these war crimes is dangerous. It threatens to undo decades of progress, to undo an entire movement. The world has to decide whom to believe. Do we believe, the Hamas spokesperson, that rape is forbidden? and that therefore it could not have possibly happened on October 7th? Or do we believe the women whose bodies tell us how they spent the last moments of their lives? Question mark. End quote. Lawmakers have started an investigation into anti-Semitism at three prominent U.S. universities, Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT. The inquiry was prompted by the university's leaders, reluctance to categorize student protests calling for the genocide of Jews as harassment during a congressional hearing on rising campus anti-Semitism. The presidents of the three institutions faced criticism for their ambiguous and bland responses during the hearing about the matter. Anti-Semitism has sharply risen since October 7th, which marks the date of the Hamas invasion into Israel. The hearing focused on whether pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel student activists advocating for, quote, Jewish genocide violated the university's code of conduct on harassment. The investigation, announced by Representative Elise Stefanik, aims to hold the universities accountable for their perceived failure on the global stage and, of course, the failure to ensure Jewish students feel safe on campus. The university presidents asserted that, Calling for genocide of Jews would breach their school's rules only if it resulted in conduct, otherwise action. This shocked many people and activists have come out to say they can't believe a university needs to wait for hate speech to turn into violence in order to be able to act on it and protect the students. I want to thank all of you for your interest in Israeli affairs, Israeli politics, our world politics. I also want to thank all of you who personally finance and fund the Israel Daily News podcast with monthly contributions. You can support us by going over to anchor.fm backslash Israel Daily News. You can contribute whatever feels good to you. I'd like to give a big thank you and shout out to Matthew T. Charlton or Charlton for supporting us. He is our latest supporter of the podcast. Matthew left a beautiful message on our GoFundMe page, which is another place where I'm doing a fundraiser for special wartime news coverage to help me finance all of my trips and everything that I have to do in order to maintain. The Israel Daily News, especially during wartime. So he went over to GoFundMe and typed in Shanna Fold in order to be able to donate. He left this wonderful message on the page. It says, I just wanted to thank you for your honest and deep reporting of Israeli affairs. Living here in the U.S., that doesn't happen too often. You have opened my eyes and heart towards Israel more than they already were. I just thought that was such a beautiful message. I wanted to read it to you because... It I ho- I hope it made everybody feel positive. Listener support is literally what helps me continue down this road of independent journalism, especially at this difficult time. So thank you all for supporting me with your words of affirmation and everything. To make a one-time contribution, you can head over to GoFundMe.com. You can Google GoFundMe and my name, Shanna Fold. You'll find me. You can also support us by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Two, you can share the show with a friend. And three, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at IsraelDaily.News. As well as Shanafold, my name has two N's in it and I'm very sensitive about that. You can also find us on Twitter at IsraelPodcast. I'd like to now share a few words about my experience speaking to students on campus Thursday at the University of Massachusetts. I just got back to New York today. It's been a whirlwind. I was invited to speak to the executive board of the IBA, which is a student group called the International Business Association. And it was a stellar group of engaged students, very polite, very well-intentioned. I spoke about international business, offered tips for cross-cultural business and marketing. Of course, I opened up with my recent experience reporting during wartime. I put up a map for the students so that they could see where Israel is, where Gaza is located, and where the West Bank is located. I explained to them that many Jews actually call it Judea and Samaria because this is where the tribe of Judah comes from, and it's only called the West Bank by the international community because it's west of the Jordan River. I'm going to share a little bit more about this in my Sunday newsletter, but the most important part of my experience yesterday at UMass was actually after the talk was over. When a young woman approached me, she had been glued to me the entire session, and uh, she actually wasn't supposed to be there, but she was near my room, and the professor who invited me invited her in, and she had time, so she came and sat in. At the end of the session, she approached me and told me that she's embarrassed to be Jewish. She says that she's hiding her Jewish identity and that she doesn't want to be discovered as being Jewish by her peers that it's not a good time for Jews and that she doesn't really want it to come up and that she's a little nervous. I I'm so heartbroken by this. I'm more more than being heartbroken, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. And yet, I'm also extremely encouraged to keep up my work of reaching young people. Even if it's only one. Even if the only person, even if I came to talk about business and the the person I inspired was a young Jewish woman who who needed somebody to give her a push. So I responded to her like this. First I asked her if I could give her a hug. And I hugged her long and tight and she cried. I knew that she needed I knew she needed it and I knew, I knew she needed to let it out. I looked at her and I told her this is real. I said what you're experiencing is real. It's real. It's emotional. I told her that hiding our identity has never worked for Jewish people that she's a bright shining light. I asked her if she thought she was a contributing member of society, to which she said yes. And I told her that she should be open about being Jewish because she just might be the only Jewish person that another person ever gets to meet. And I told her that she never would know if she were to make a positive impact on somebody who met her and thought something positively about all Jewish people because they met her and she was a positive experience for them. And I also suggested to her, she doesn't know that she might impact somebody who goes on to have a company, who goes on to have Jewish employees, who goes on to treat those Jewish employees well because they had a favorable experience with that one Jewish person that they one time knew. I really do think this encouraged her. I hope it did. I believe in action-based ideas. So I hope that this not only encouraged her but gave her some guidance and some personal responsibility as to why it's important to be open about who you are, this is. I I also called on the entire group to check in and to be extra kind to people during this hard time, and I am now calling on you all. Be kind. Go out of your way to be kind. Go out of your way to take on personal responsibility to uplift your community. You don't know how much a smile or holding a door open or giving a compliment or giving a call to your Jewish friends and family can really mean. You just don't know how much it could turn someone's day around. Please take responsibility personally at this time for what's going on. We are genuinely all in this together. We all need each other's support right now. This is a fun Hanukkah a fun Han- Hanukkah story that I'm going to leave you off with. Archaeologists conducting excavations in Jerusalem City of David National Park have unearthed 16 16 fragments of ceramic roof tiles dating back to the Hellenistic period, that's the 2nd century BCE. This discovery, identified as the oldest evidence of ceramic roof tile used in Israel, sheds light on construction practices during the Maccabean era. The tiles are believed to have originated during the rule of Antiochus IV, a prominent Greek ruler associated with the Hanukkah story. The find offers insight into architectural styles introduced by Antiochus IV, adding a historical dimension to the Hanukkah narrative. The excavation was a joint effort by the Israel Antiquities Authority and Tel Aviv University. How awesome is that? All right. Well, that is it for today's show. Today is Friday, December 8th, 2023. Tel Aviv has a low of 16 degrees Celsius and a high of 22 degrees. That's 61 degrees Fahrenheit for the low, going up to 72 degrees for the high over there in Tel Aviv. Subscribe to the Israel Daily News podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're hearing it from. We are everywhere. Don't forget to sign up to our Israel Weekly News Wrap. The Israel Weekly News Wrap is a newsletter with the top five stories coming out of Israel from throughout the week and, of course, with a personal note from me at the top. You can sign up for that at IsraelDaily.News. That's the website, IsraelDaily.News, for the newsletter. A big thank you goes out to our social media director, Michelle Milner, and I'm going to send you off with a brand-new song, definitely a different vibe coming from our Erica Kral, a talented DJ who is changing it up this week putting some vocals in that song. It's called I'll Close My Eyes, and that's the English translation at least. It's a Hebrew song titled in Hebrew. Enjoy this song and have a great and productive day and an excellent weekend. Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and happy (laughs) Hanukkah.
1: i the the